everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our Parsha series on Shemot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're addressing the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as exploring together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. This week's episode has been sponsored in memory of David Shmuel Ben Yitzchak, whose Yorzeit is on the 20th of Adar. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships really help us keep this project going. So if you love listening, consider marking one of these episodes for an occasion of your own. Today's episode marks two important milestones. First, it marks our 100th episode. Dr. Yael Ziegler and I held a special event in Matan's Jerusalem Beit Midrash in front of a live audience to mark this milestone. The conversation was recorded and will soon be uploaded to our general podcast feed for your listening pleasure. We spoke about the podcast's origins and about teaching Tanakh in the modern world. Second milestone is that this episode closes the Book of Shemot and the series on nationality and identity formation. At the end of my conversation with today's guest, I will conclude with some summary remarks. Parshat Vayakel Pekudei is, of course, a double parsha. It is the repeat parsha, quote unquote, where we learn about the construction of the Mishkan. Whereas in Truma and Tetzaveh, the descriptions moved from furnishings to the building construction, here the order is reversed. There, the ark was mentioned first, symbolizing the focal point of the Mishkan. Here, the pragmatics take precedence. What must practically come first is the edifice itself. The emphasis in these chapters is both in the fulfillment of Moshe's instructions and on the roles of Betzalel and Oaliyav, much more so than in the previous partio covering the same topics. We have the clear sense that just as the second set of Luchot are created by human hands, so too the Mishkan's construction has been handed over to human hands. The book ends with a divine cloud settling above the Mishkan, signaling the divine presence and the fire at night. These markers both reassured the people that God's presence rested upon the Mishkan and served as a clear callback to the Har Sinai experience. The Mishkan was a traveling Sinai and the presence of God would rest and move with the nation when necessary. Today, I welcome a new guest, Joanne Greenaway, who leads the London School of Jewish Studies, LSJS, where she's responsible for strategy and growth. She's a trained lawyer with over a decade's experience in international arbitration and public international law. A word about LSJS. LSJS delivers inspiring educational programs which transmit a love of learning and achieve excellence in teaching to transform the Jewish community in the UK and around the world. Their programs are delivered in person and online. Joanne, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So in our previous episode that we devoted to the Mishkan Parshio, we really spoke specifically about the Kalim, about the different vessels in the Mishkan and went deep on that topic. Now today, I think we're going to take sort of a broader look at what this enterprise means for the Jewish people, um, definitely as our uh, episodes are sort of winding down here. As I said in my 
early introduction that we're uh, on our hundredth episode and we're ending also the book of Shemot. And so it, with you really also specifically with your backgrounds and, and the things that you work in leading an organization, uh, I really want us to jump into this, uh, a different angle, sort of less particular and more about the, the broader project that the Mishkan represents for Am Yisrael. So why don't you take us into that wherever it feels right for you? So I think what's really fascinating to me about the the Mishkan project is really this idea of it being a joint enterprise and what that signifies on many different levels. Personally, as you said, you know, I'm engaged every day with building a team and really looking at the mission of our organization and coming together to build um, a joint project. So I really relate to the Mishkan from that uh, through that lens and particularly the whole aspect, like we see, for example, from chapter 35 in the fifth Pasuk, where it says, and talks about all the different things that people bring, whether it's gold, silver, copper, um, and we see a whole range of different things that people bring. And really, it's all about the fact that it doesn't matter what people bring, but the fact is people bring with all their heart and they contribute. And it's this contribution that is so very meaningful. You know, and together you become something that's bigger than the sum of your parts. Um, and that's so that's so critical, you know, as anyone who's been involved in, in running an organization or building a team knows that ultimately it doesn't matter the individual, um, what the individual thing is. It's about, um, it's about the bigger whole. And, you know, even within my team, Um, what's really important is the kind of teamwork we do where we look at each different person's um, personality type and how we all work together and how, you know, each person's coming from a different place, but really everyone contributes their uniqueness. And I think that, you know, there's also the level that I very much gain from Rabbi Sachs's ideas, um, who I think speaks very strongly about this parasha in Uh, his book that's one of my favorites, which is called The Home We Build Together. Um, Rabbi Sachs is someone who's influenced me very deeply and also the organization that I run. He he led it and he was very much um, a part of who we are today. Um, So I always like to relate to his thinking, but in particular, this parasha, um, The Home We Build Together is so much, I see it so much in this, this Mishkan project that it's about this combined, this combined project where everyone comes together with a single purpose and and achieve something quite incredible. I think we actually, we see that right from the, the, the beginning, from the word Vayakel, um, and the way that comes through in the parasha and the, the way it relates to what's come before. And Rabbi Sachs speaks about this because we have um, the parasha starting with the word Vayakel, which is, you know, and he gathered, um, and, and it echoes what's come before in last week's parasha in Kitisa, which um, which was when the people gathered to build a golden calf. So you have this complete contrast in the word kihila, um, with, with the use of the word kihila, um, in, in the way that it's actually, the way that it's used and the way that um, it refers to what was being done when the people gathered. So obviously in last week's parasha, the people gathered as a mob and they followed the crowd and they ended up building this, this golden calf which, which we see as this kind of herd mentality where, where people um, you know, aren't led and aren't driven by a positive mission, but were nevertheless very enthusiastic. Uh, whereas now Moshe gathered the people and they came together and they had a leader who was able to direct them towards something so positive with this same term, with this same concept of kihila. And I think Moshe was very clever because 
he managed to um, harness this energy that people had and this enthusiasm in order to do something so constructive um, and, and so positive. And I think that's really the essence of, of this parasha because Kehillah can be, you know, for the good or for the bad. And it's all about how we motivate people and how we bring t- people together for, um, for a common good. Yeah, so um, just looking at that word that you mentioned, which is in the beginning of Perak Lamed Bet, in the negative mm-hmm. example of the Egel, it says, Vayikahel ha'am al aharon. right? So I just want to flesh out the point you just made, which is that in the Egel example, it was the initiative of the people in that mob mentality, right. the same word versus Vayakel right. in our Parsha, which is obviously initiated by Moshe, this time even more than last time, right? We've like lost the direct God involvement to a certain degree, and mm-hmm. now it's become really people-oriented, which is sort of that big difference between the initial commands of the Mishkan and the ones we have here. And I agree that it's so striking, the difference between that which is... Now, in our world, we believe there's room for grassroots organizations, right? But the question is, at what point is a society ready for that kind of movement? And here we're talking about a society that really still hasn't had their feet planted in the ground. They're still just recovering from coming out of Egypt, being slaves. We're going to talk a lot about this when we get to the book of Bamidbar, but they really haven't sort of substantiated who they are as a society. And a society like that is not a society, I believe, that's ready for grassroots organizations because then what you have is is the Egel. And so they still need something that's much more God or Moshe directed to have something that's going to be navigated and using their strengths for the right purposes. So yeah, that's such a striking read. I'm not sure we always pick up on the Vayikahel and the Vayakhel. Uh, thanks for that point. Right. That's really great. Right. I think they just didn't have, they didn't yet have a national identity in order to coalesce around as a grassroots organization. So they really had to have a leader who was able to instill in them that identity. Like, I think sometimes we forget what, what it meant to be, to be slaves and to be, have, have come out of that experience. Like they had this kind of, they had the diversity of the different tribes and the different, um, you know, religious groupings, but they didn't have a, a joint project to work towards. And I think what's special now about the way that Moshe is able to um, bring them together for this project of the Mishkan is that he's able to create a situation where they have both this common identity and purpose, as well as this diversity of contributions, you know, and I think that's what we have to um, harness at, at whatever level, whether it's the level of a team, whether it's the level of a community, whether it's the level of a society, to have this balance between the individual and the collective. In this post-COVID times, I think we often think, well, people don't want that anymore. People don't want that community anymore. They want to um, be autonomous and they're not so interested. And we've, we've um, atomized. Um, but I, I think what we're seeing here in this parasha through this Mishkan project is that people are still desperate for meaning, right? People want to come together and they want to build together. And that if it can be directed in the right way, um, rather than you know, people will find their community, whether it's through social media, whether it's through, um, you know, populist leaders, you know, people just need to be directed towards something positive. And when they do, we see that people give so much to this project, they even have to be turned away, right? People are over-contributing and Moshe has to actually tell them to stop because they want to contribute so much. 
Yeah, beautiful. That's we we said in a previous episode, it's the one time that a, a fundraising campaign actually went beyond its expectations. It really never happened again in, in human history. I actually was just involved just this week in a fundraising campaign. So I relate to it very much like that. Yes. But you know, it's also about giving people something to be part of and and people do contribute if they believe in the mission. Right. So I'm curious how you think that this idea relates to maybe even the idea of breed or right of covenant, which we've spoken about uh, quite a bit in, in previous mm-hmm. episodes. So I'm curious how how this project, do you see it as a continuation of of, of the breed of Sinai? Or, or how, how does that idea sort of fit into to what's going on here with the building of the Mishkan? So Rabbi Sachs talks a lot about covenant for him the covenantal society is all about is about the we versus the i so whereas the social um, contract is about um, is about each person and what each person can do for each other um, the covenantal society is about this kind of common identity and each person's responsibility rather than each person's rights in a social contract um, and and the home that we build together is very much about coming together with a shared destiny. Um, and and if we don't have that, then what he argues and what I think we're seeing today in a very, very stark and sad way, particularly within um, Israeli society at the moment, is that this kind of social cohesion that we so desperately need covenantal society uh, for is, is really starting to break down. And, and in order to strengthen it, you need to have this common purpose that we saw at that particular moment in time with the Mishkan. Okay, so I want to explore that idea more in directly anchored in the Parsha. So when we say the word covenantal society, okay, which you've given the general definition that we do mean in general that it's a collective project instead of an individual project. But what what is that? What kind of expression is that given in the actual project of the Mishkan itself? That this idea of covenantal society before we bring it to today's world and different different current events. I'm curious if we could sort of anchor that more in the Parsha itself. So, so I think what's important to remember in terms of the parsha is that we have this real, real echo and this real mirroring of the episode of creation itself. So we have not only the very, very similar words used, but we have um, the structure of the creation episode echoed in the structure of the Mishkan construction. Um, it's very, very, very much longer in the Mishkan construction, but what we're seeing is is a repetition of the whole creative way of being. So we have many sevens used in the creation narrative and we have many sevens used in the Mishkan narrative and we're very much supposed to be brought back constantly to the idea of God's creation. Um, and and I think that's very important when it comes to the covenantal society because we have to remember that, you know, we need to, we, we're doing something for the greater good, right? We're doing something because we're all responsible for each other because we're trying to be godly. We're not trying to build something as a contractual um, project where we're all looking for our own aims. We're looking for something that's much more transcendental um, and, and really that we're looking to build a nation. And to do that, we do it through creating just as God created our world. Um, but, but what we see very, very much is that the focus of the Barisha and Shamat, it starts with creation and it ends with this creative project. Um, so it's, it's bookended, um, but the emphasis is much more on what man builds, right? So what God builds happens in, in 35 Pesukim and what man builds happens in like over 100. So we are aiming to be godly and to bring God into our, into our world and into our, um, and into our structures. But we're looking really to do that in a way where 
we are um, working together and we are taking responsibility rather than building on an individual level. So we mentioned this idea about how we achieved more than we had imagined, that the people were were more willing to give than we had really thought. We sort of were able to rechannel the giving that they had uh, in the Eagle experience back into the Mishkan. Um, so I'm curious also, again, you just said you just came off of a, of a campaign and obviously in working with an organization to sort of think with you, uh, think together with you about the nature of the giving that, that goes on in this project. So I think there's a really fascinating um, dichotomy in, in the parsha between um, the aspect of people coming with their heart and bringing their heart into the project and the aspect of commandment. Um, and I think this fascinated me because it's a really critical balance that we need to strike generally with our observance of mitzvot, whether it's, um, you know, whether we're doing things because we're commanded and we do them to the letter or whether we do them with our individual energies and with, with our heart and soul. And I think that balance is always something that we need to be strike to be striking, but we see it play out here in the Mishkan project. And we have a number of psukim that repeat the word lev about people who are um, um, who come kol nadiv lev with their with their heart that moves them um, to to bring their offerings and all their different types of offerings. Um, and then, uh, and we see the expression hochmat lev as well, relating to the skills of the women who are spinning their goat's hair into linen, um, lots and lots and lots of times that, we're, that we see this, this um, term used. Um, and on the other hand, um, right at the end of Pekudeh, in, in the last Pasuk in the whole of Shemot, um, we see Moshe inspected the work and saw that it had been done just as God commanded. Um, so we get a sense of it being done just to the letter, um, and then Moshe blessed the project. Um, and, and lots of commentators discuss this. Um, you know, what does that mean that they did it exactly as com- God had commanded? Uh, because actually, if you look at the different versions, and, you know, we've got, we know a number of times that the instructions had been repeated. So if we look back at the instructions in Parshat Truma, um, the project wasn't actually executed exactly as the instructions had, had been set out. So, for example, there are discrepancies in the order. So, you know, whether the furnishings were um, were made before the tent and the courtyard, um, like they were in the instructions, whereas actually in, in this parasha, we see it happening the other way around. So, so in a sense, it wasn't done exactly as God has commanded. It was done as the people had chosen to, to do it. You know, so what was, what was correct? And how was it that in the end, Boshe blessed the project and we know that right at the end, God's presence came and dwelled within the Mishkan. So, you know, there are a number of different interesting facets to this. Um, one of them, the Ha'emek Hadavara talks about how actually they were really very loyal and they weren't uncontrolled in their worship in the way that, like, for example, Nadav and Avi, who had been, there was something where they clearly um, were recognized for the way in which they carried out the task, even though we know that they brought much more than was needed. You know, as we've said already, that, um, that Moshe had to tell them to stop because they'd gone, they'd gone uh, over and above. But that wasn't punished, right? In this, in this situation, it wasn't punished. And Nechama Lobovitz brings what I think is, is a really fascinating and important response that's uh, mentioned by a number of different commentators 
which is that it's similar to the idea of an eye for an eye, um, right? So uh, the idea that to comply with God's will, you don't necessarily have to comply to the letter with the instructions. To a certain extent, we have to be able to um, comply with Hashem's intention, um, but not in a robotic way, in a way that we can find our own individual um, way of doing things. Um, so it comes back to Kona Divli Bo, you know, in anyone, uh, for anyone's heart who prompts him to give, you, you are able to give and you're able to give in a, in a really genuine way. Um, so, so I think that whole voluntary aspect alongside trying to fulfill God's will is what comes across very strongly in this Pasha. So I think that this point is really critical because as we're at the end of Sefer Shemot and we've received all of these different commandments and we're going to receive even more than that in the future, this idea of fulfilling God's word, but it not necessarily having to be the exact or that there are multiple variations to it, I think is a really, really important point that, you know, so we went too far in the case of the of the golden calf, where we sort of took those liberties into a direction that were not commanded at all. We'll see a similar episode when it comes to the sons of Aharon, of Nadav and Avihu, where we have, a, a, I think, a similar criticism there. But in this case, we have the understanding that if we're sticking with the with the structure, right, of what God had commanded, there still is room for individual expression within that kind of, within that kind of giving. And I think that that itself is also really a significant message to end the book of Shemot with uh, as we've received sort of our first set of laws and we've gotten our first introduction to mm-hmm. almost overwhelming system of, of so many strictures and and already in this project we see and learn that with, there is room for individual expression as long as we're sticking to the basics of what God has commanded us. Yeah exactly exactly and I I would point out there were two specific contributions to to the project where um, that I think we can also learn from in particular when it comes to people giving in their own way um, and again this is something that I relate to from the perspective of of having been involved in a giving campaign just now because you do see different styles and and they're all really valid right so everyone who contributes you appreciate and 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 people give in their own way but there are a couple of contributions that were singled out within this um, within the Mishkan project by by the rabbis and by the Midrashim that I think we can also learn from. Um, most of the things that were given to the Mishkan, the contributions that are listed were not assigned to any specific person. Um, but the two that were discussed that were, um, one was by the women and one was by the princes. Um, and, I, and I think those two contributions are, are important to look at. Um, the women... <laughs> Are, are actually mentioned by, well, Rashi discussed their enthusiasm and how when they bring the copper, the mirrors that were used for the copper laver, they were commended and and how their contribution was really valued in particular because um, Moshe was, was suggesting that they that they not use the, these mirrors because they were something that was like for vanity, but actually what um, the God, according to Rashi, God, God says to to Moshe, no, you know, you should use them because actually their source um, relates back to to Egypt and how the women, according to Rashi, had used these mirrors in order to to rouse their husband's desire to, um, you know, to to come together and to have babies at the time where their husbands were involved in labor and were were so um, exhausted and so beaten down by, by, by slavery. And so these mirrors had such a beautiful, positive 
message and story that they were ultimately included without being melted down to be part of these copper lavers in the Mishkan. So, so here we have a contribution that the women were so particular, wanted to be part of the Mishkan project. And they, these women who are waiting at the entrance to the, to the Mishkan were invited to bring those things in um, and to use them wholesale without melting them down. And that contrasts with another contribution, which was the, um, the contribution of the princes, the Nasim, who brought the jewels that were used in the ephod um, in the breastplate. And there we there were some contrasting midrashim where actually the Nasim were criticized for the way in which they gave their contribution. Why? Because they brought it, they, they waited till the end of the project to bring them. They were the last to bring. And and they were they were criticized that they weren't giving as wholeheartedly. And other there, there's a midrash midrash rabbi and there's a midrash in Safri and and the one in Safri said that that no they they waited till the end to see what was needed so they could make up the rest. So that's also valuable. So I think we see different types of giving and you know as I said they're all contributing and it's all worthwhile. But we do learn from the different styles of the way in which people gave as part of the project. Funny, you know, between those two giving styles, I actually identify with the Nassim. I, I really, right. I like to feel that I'm giving something that's needed, especially when there's right, like a right. mass project. And so I actually identify with that. And I, but I do recognize the criticism because there is a criticism of there that says, well, I'm not the first one who's, who's signing up. Mm-hmm. There is a certain, uh, a certain self-introspection that has to come uh, with that. But on the other hand, I, I understand the the advantages of that kind of giving for someone who wants to feel like their contribution is meaningful, especially when so many people are giving at, at the same time. So it's a part of me that really identifies with that. Right. But there was another opinion that the Nassim held back because they wanted to be approached personally because of their status. And um, they wanted to have an individual approach, which is also something you see from, you know, certain donors who want to give, who don't want to be approached like everybody else, like the masses. Um, but, you know, you understand that as well. They want to give something meaningful. Yeah, totally. You know, I want to just sort of wind down our conversation speaking about God. Very, very strikingly, the book of Shemot ends with the presence of God. It ends with the presence of God coming on top of the Mishkan. It's sort of the ultimate affirmation. It's something that is missing in later stages of history. For example, when God's presence does not come down on the second temple, which is sort of like a very low moment. Again, fast forwarding hundreds Mm -hmm. of years. But I want to sort of end with, uh, with sort of a question or an exploration of, of what does it mean to bring God into the Mishkan, right? We have this very human endeavor, human building project, and, but ultimately we were making it quote unquote for God or to be a meeting place between us and God. So I'm curious if we could sort of think about that, that last piece together. Yeah. Look, I think it's, it's absolutely critical that the Vayakal starts with a reminder of Shabbat and ends with God's presence being brought into the Mishkan because it's a complete um, echo that we spoke about between creation and creation by God and creation by man. And the whole point of the creation story is that we're creating, ending with Shabbat is that we have this sacred, this sacred time. And yet here with the Mishkan project, we're ending up with a sacred space. So this parallel between the sacred time and the sacred space, you know, is key to understanding um, what we're doing here and how God's presence um, comes to bear. I think what we see is that in both cases, we have um, many instructions. So having just finished learning Hilchot Shabbat as part of a halacha program, um, I'm very keenly conscious of how many halachot we have around Shabbat, all our instructions. And here again with a Mishkan, it's full of instructions. 
So, so to me, what's fascinating is that whenever we bring God into something, um, in a in a Jewish way, according to the Torah, it's full of um, instructions because the more order we have, the more holiness we can also bring. You know, which is perhaps something that's counterintuitive to the secular the secular world. But certainly, from our perspective, this dimension of holiness comes from um, the freedom, as Rabbi Sachs again says to us, that freedom exists where order rules. Um, and that's what we see in, in both time, both both cases. So also this um, the the dichotomy between the Shabbat and the Mishkan ha- um, shows us this this holiness of space that mirrors the holiness of time and how both components are so integral to um, to God's existence within our lives. I would just go back to to really this this communal endeavor and this joint enterprise is. Um, really brings us to the the perfect ending whereby we really feel the fact that when we do something for a holy purpose, that's when God's presence resides within it. Wait, so I, I love to understand that a little bit more. You're saying that the sense of purpose for what the Mishkan was created for, it itself imbues the Mishkan with Kedusha. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I think so. Because the, the combination of following God's command with bringing the diversity of contributions and leading towards a common goal is brings that kedusha. And so you're saying that at the culmination of the the end of this project, we have the collective giving and we have the desire to meet God and those mm-hmm. two couple together. And then God pre- God's presence comes and dwells on the Mishkan. But we need both of those elements in it. Exactly. Right. That's beautiful. I think that it's really, you know, not every book ends with sort of a great, I would say almost like a happy ending. But there's something very moving about the ending of Sefer Shemot, where we really feel like we were able to navigate through very difficult waters and sort of create a system where we have almost like a Har Sinai, but that it travels with us throughout the desert. And there definitely is some sort of parallel there between between the revelation at, at Sinai and the presence of God in the way in the cloud, right? Similar motifs that in the way that, that God then travels with us throughout the Mishkan. And I feel that ultimately that's sort of our, our, our goal forever is to try and figure out how to bring God into our lives and mm-hmm. have him travel with us, right? Put him in our pockets or, you know, when we don't have a Mishkan or a Mikdash, we have to figure out how to sort of m- make God even smaller, fold him up even to even smaller pieces and, and put him inside of our pocket. And and right. I think that very much that'll be the goal of Sefer Vayikra is to explain to us how we're going to be able to do this through through all different halachot of, of Tumah tahara and the way we eat and the way we conduct our sexual relationships, that all of those elements are going to be ways that even when we won't have the Mishkan or the Mikdash in future times, we'll be able to achieve a similar feeling of having the the cloud of God that, that uh-huh. really um, envelops us throughout our daily life. And it's it's so interesting that actually the way that we've done this through the Mishkan is not even by creating a permanent structure. You know, what we've done is create something that's temporary that we pack up and we take with us everywhere we go. It's not like the, the Mikdash that we've, that we've constructed that's that's uh, you know as grand and as lasting and yet um it's this kind of symbol of community and of coming together for the greater good and for, for to do hashem's will um, and and having the luchot right in the center of it so we have this kind of um symbol of community with the with its constitution almost right in the middle that that enables us to to coalesce and to join together and to really unite for 
you know, as you say, the next stage in our journey. Joanne, I want to thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on onto the podcast and uh, wish you luck in your in your fundraising and community campaigns. Please <laughs> thank have you so much. Well. I will be, well be as successful as the Mishkan Project. Please, God. The best. With this conversation, we bring the book of Shemot to a close. These conversations aimed to focus on the developing nationhood of the people of Israel. And we have discovered along with them that becoming a nation is not such a simple process. It's not enough to overthrow an evil despot and even to achieve dazzling religious heights. Anchoring this new way of life that God is trying to demonstrate for the world for the people of Israel is going to take much more work. As Sir Isaiah Berlin famously put it, freedom from, whether from Paro or from Egypt itself, will not be enough. The book of Vayikra in many ways explores freedom too, what we should be doing and striving for with our newfound freedom to worship God, to transform ourselves and this world. The book of Vayikra brings us into a world that tries to elevate each of our most basic human functions, food, body, relationships, space of worship, and time. Vayikra presents us with detailed laws meant to translate lofty ideals into daily routine. We will explore these new codes of ethics and ways of worship in the next series on Vayikra titled Kadusha is in the details. Looking forward to seeing you there. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.